0: Hey, Josh. Hey, Bill. Okay, so here's the deal. Hillary and Matt have invited us onto Marooned on Mars to do a backdoor pilot of our upcoming movie podcast, Obstructed Viewing.
1: We're so lucky. I know. Can you believe it? Okay, let's tell the listener what the deal is with our podcast. Every episode, we'll watch and discuss two movies. But Bill, how do we choose movies? Aren't there like a thousand movies? A million movies, perhaps? But to narrow our choices, we're going to spin our Wheel of Themes, and then we'll pick a theme for two films. So it's like a double feature. Exactly. We'll each choose a movie that fits the theme. Themes are all over the place. We might land on Angry Animals in Australia, or Kid Builds an Amazing Thing, or People Being Weird in the Woods, or They Have to Rescue the President.
0: Gosh, let me at those themes but we don't want to make it too easy for ourselves. After we choose a theme, we'll throw ourselves a little curveball and each spin our Wheel of Obstruction, a constraint we put on our selection to make the choice a little harder and hopefully a little more interesting.
1: So you might spin the Wheel of Obstructions and then choose a movie in a specific decade, like the 1950s. And then you might spin the Wheel of Obstructions and have to
0: choose a specific genre, like a Western. Okay, let's get our wheels out. We need to let Hillary and Matt know what we're going to be watching. You do the honors, buddy. spin our wheel of themes and let's find out what kind of movies we'll be watching for our pilot episode all right let's do this here we go
1: Okay, our first theme is sabotage. Ooh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna uh, we're gonna need to pick two movies about people throwing their uh, wooden shoes, or what other kinds of sabotage there are. We'll have to figure out what sabotage actually is.
0: This is an excellent spin. So many good sabotage movies. So much good sabotage to talk about.
1: Well, Bill, we're not done. We have to spin the wheel of obstruction to make our choice a little more difficult. Do you want to go first? Thank you very much. Don't mind if I do.
0: okay whoa i have landed on remake all Mm. right my sabotage movie has to be a remake of another movie okay let me start thinking about what that's gonna be um why don't you give the wheel of obstructions a turn to see what you're gonna be stuck with while i try and figure mine out okay uh let me give it a spin
1: okay black and white All right, I'm going to have to pick a Sabotage movie that's in black and white. i got to think about this for a minute. Do you have yours?
0: I actually think I do. I want to pick the late, great William Friedkin's 1977 movie, Sorcerer. It's a remake of Henri-Georges Clouseau's 1953 movie, The Wages of Fear. In both movies, some guys are transporting nitroglycerin across dangerous terrain to put out an oil fire caused by, you guessed it, Sabotage. Uh, what about you, Josh? that buy you enough time to think of a black and white sabotage movie?
1: Bill, I just want to say I love Sorcerer. That is an amazing movie. R.I.P. to the great William Friedman. To a great one. Um, yeah, such yeah. a good movie. Okay, so I think I'm going to choose The Train, which is a John Frankenheimer film from 1964 with the handsome Burt Lancaster. The Train, John Frankenheimer, Bill, uh, 1964. Have you seen it, by the way? Never seen it. Well, neither have I, which is another great thing about this podcast, because it's going to get us to watch a lot of films that we've never seen before. The Train is set in World War II, and there is a German train. Resistance fighters have to stop it. (laughs) Got to sabotage that train. So, we should tell Hillary and Matt that we'll be watching Sorcerer and the Train for our pilot episode of Obstructed Viewing presented by Marooned on Mars. <laughs>
2: Baby, it's almost like uh, we
3: never left.
2: uh It is almost like we never left. Um, yeah, yeah. Except I, that uh, it does seem like it's been a little while.
3: Well, I did leave the state of Maine.
2: That's right. That's right. We're all back in the Midwest now.
3: Yeah, we're all Thank back God. in the Midwest. All Thank both God. of us. Back and, in the uh, back
2: in the bosom of the country.
3: We're back um, in the breadbasket, and uh, <laughs> right in the breadbasket, and. Um, we we you know we 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 won't be back with any probably regularity like we used to be so regular with the podcasts that we put out but we'll be back more semi regularly than we've been like we haven't recorded since like march or something or april or whatever
2: it's been a long time it's been a we've long had time a,
3: we've had a summer i've had a summer i've had quite a Anyway, we'll talk about that later at some other later date. Today is a very special episode of Marooned on Mars, isn't it, Hillary? It is. It's
2: a very special episode of Marooned on Mars uh, in which to both to jar, jog, spur uh, me and Matt back into the podcast zone space, space, back into the space of the podcast, um, and uh to get to do something fun with our friends. This is what we're doing today. I forget where this sentence began. In any case, uh, we're very excited to have um returning guest champion, Bill, and um not yet champion, but soon to be champion Josh. Uh who pretender, are the-
3: pretender to the throne.
2: Pre- oh, the young pretender, Josh. No. Uh um, uh who are the hosts Dauphin, Dauphin Dauphin. oh the Dauphin oh he's gonna keep interrupting this was Bill the Sun King oh it wouldn't be a podcast if you weren't interrupting me oh Oh, boy uh um in any case Bill Uh and Josh are the hosts of a brand new movie podcast called Obstructed Viewing Um and we Matt and I felt like because they are our friends and this podcast is amazing, at least in concept. And here we're about to figure out what it's like in practice. Uh, we would uh we would quote unquote host the very first episode of Obstructed Viewing. And so that's what we're doing. It's a crossover, it's a special episode. You'll want to listen to this with your kids, with your loved ones, hold them close. Bill, you want to take it away?
0: We are so happy to be here. Very happy to be back on Marooned with my Marooned movie buddies um, and my movie buddy, Josh. We're super excited about this podcast. You heard our little introduction to it uh, before you even heard the theme music today. And we are excited to, frankly, to take this, uh, this concept car from Detroit of the Future And take it out on the road and see how it holds up. Is it going to be like an amazing electric vehicle or is it going to be Homer's car from the infamous Homer's (laughs) car episode remains to be seen. Um, And I'm very excited that my good movie buddy, Josh, is here with me. Um, Josh and I have been talking movies for a long time and putting this podcast together for a long time. And uh, we're just delighted to be here and, and sharing movies and conversation with our good friends.
1: Wow. I'm Josh um
3: crushing it so far it.
1: this is this is the first time hearing of this um <laughs> he led an amazing life um yeah so uh so yeah so bill and i have this uh this new podcast uh that we uh are going to release an incredible amount of content uh through <laughs> we have a we have a 10 million dollar deal with iheart radio uh, mm. i forgot to to tell you guys I didn't want you guys to get jealous or anything like that but it's like a whole thing and we have like a stunt that we have to do regarding uh today's theme sabotage it involves blowing it. anyway I don't want to get into it but um <laughs> uh but yeah so should we talk about sabotage a little bit
2: Yeah hell yeah
1: Let's get into it buddy So what is sabotage who sabotages Bill, Hillary and Matt Um so Wikipedia just a very like brief <laughs> fleeting glance <laughs> tells this riveting apocryphal but apocryphal story about belgian workers who would throw their sabots their their wooden clogs apparently into the gears of factory machines and that's how we get the term uh, sabotage but uh but apparently just belgian workers would just like wear these like cheap wooden clogs these uncomfortable clogs um and then you know whatever at some point the word sabotage was was adopted i don't know <laughs> something else i've been i've been researching actually for my own um like dissertation project Ugh, god it sounds weird just saying that but um is the term to throw sand in the gears Ooh. and i'm 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 putting that like i'm putting that on blast no no pun intended but um i'm throwing that i'm i'm throwing that out there because i genuinely can't get to the bottom of the Uh, etymological roots of to throw sand in the gears. And I've been like going through Google and I've been going through a bunch of archives to try to figure that out. So if anybody has any idea, like, let me know, Um, slide into the old DMS, Uh, but not, not in that way, please. Um, Okay. So should we talk about like just some common themes maybe that um, I don't know, attend, this overall category i don't know what do you guys think um
2: sabotage
1: sabotage yeah so i'm thinking like okay sabotage tends to disrupt some kind of flow some kind of like kinetic grammar um tends to mean right interruption obstruction a subversion of of business as usual and something that i've been kind of thinking about between these two films that we will introduce um shortly is, is sabotage a negative or a positive action as in like blowing up a pipeline uh, or blowing up train tracks is obviously like the removal or the disintegration of infra- critical infrastructure. Right. But can sabotage also be something positive too? Like if I encourage you to perform a subversive action uh, you know, am I, am I engaging in, in sabotage? Maybe that's like not a super interesting question, but it's just something that's been floating around my um uninteresting brain i guess but um and then also you know how does that formally like show up in all these films too like part of the fun of watching a movie right involves a certain kind of like subversion or sabotage of your expectations you know like in the uh in the studio space that's what they always tell you when you're like in development they're like you know but does this script really subvert your expectations in some kind of like juicy way i don't know so Hmm. uh yeah what do you what do you what do you guys think what what is sabotage and how should we be doing it? Parody.
3: Or whether should we should be doing it.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly.
3: Should we blow, blow up a pipeline? Let's talk about that one.
2: Well, yeah, yes. I think uh, we know the
3: answer to that.
2: I mean, I, I get, but that, that raises, I mean, that raises a sort of related question, right? Which is like, um, uh, you know, I mean, what, is there a link between like sabotage and politics? You know, or like what kinds of links are there? Like there are readings of sabotage, um, like I would say like Andreas Mom's How to Blow Up a Pipeline that sort of posit sabotage at as a way to get to politics, right? As a way to like make make kind of like political struggle happen, right? Or maybe actually Ministry for the Future kind of seems to propose something like that too, right? I mean, I guess this goes along with Josh's like, um, you know, thinking about like, what kind of action is sabotage? Is it like a negative action? You know, do we think of it as a positive action? I think there's one story about sabotage that imagines that it can be sort of like enfolded in a tidy way into like a recognizable political process you know and there might be another version of it that says it's doing something quite di- quite different from that
3: we have to embrace the positive and the negative the dialectic of sabotage in its entirety because uh, of course uh in a certain way sabotage is the uh is the um peanut butter Uh, to the jelly of creative destruction it's destructive creation you've not you've positively created a blown up pipeline once you sabotage it have you not so that like we have to like this is something that we thought about i think when we were talking about ministry for the future is that there's this kind of um uh i guess probably like liberal reaction even before the idea when the idea of sabotage is even floated, like, oh, well, what will people think and what will this lead to and what will, you know, uh, aren't we going to open up a Pandora's box without thinking about like the kind of revolutionary moment of sabotage itself saying, well, the positive thing that we'll, we we will have done is blown up the pipeline. Right. And that in itself is good because pipelines are inherently bad in the, in the schema of like saving the world and, you know, uh, ending the eco side of the petro military industrial complex or whatever you want to say so um it depends though the question the answer the uh question of is sabotage good is uh it depends
2: yeah i mean also i wonder about i'm I, i have a like nuanced uh a nuanced well it's not true not really a nuanced question but a slightly nuanced question which both of these movies actually made me think about like um you know uh at, like at what point is something like sabotage versus like you know um just like part of like a large scale like resistance i mean like is it is sabotage like you know just like one distinctive action is it always linked to um machinery you know like um or or i guess there's you know you can like have like yeah anyway I, get, I guess it's not, but I think often, and like both of these movies like really are very obsessed with like, you know, how one part goes into another part as like some aspect of the way that we think about like sabotage. Anyway, those are just some things I'm wondering about. I feel like we should probably, oh Matt, Matt sorry. I was just
3: going to say, it's interesting because the most, the, I don't know if you can hear me or if I need to be shouting or not, but there's a stump being ground outside my, so I'm shouting just to hear myself, but uh, there's a tree being removed but anyway so the form of sabotage I am most intimately um knowledgeable of is of course self-sabotage <laughs> and so um if you think about self-sabotage and then you and connect that with what Hillary just said is is sabotage always something mechanical if you think about the kind of the concept of self-sabotage then you're are you not mechanizing yourself basically saying like, I should be doing this. I should be a tenured professor by now. I should have published my book. I should have it's XYZ. X, but all that should have relies on this kind of concept of yourself as as malfunctioning somehow. Yeah. As not like um uh operating in the in the in the proper in the proper way. And if you're self-sabotaging yourself then you are, or if you're self-sabotaging, then you are, you know, throwing sand in your own kind of mechanical gears of this kind of uh, 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 forward-progressing linear like life that you think that you've planned out for yourself to the exclusion of like the world that acts on you in certain ways and tells you, hey, maybe you don't want to publish that book. Maybe you don't want to be a tenured professor. Maybe you would rather, you know, grind stumps for a living or uh or install vinyl flooring, which is extremely satisfying because it's an action over and done with and not like this endless repetition of trying to teach kids Goethe. Uh and- yeah, example For example, of- for example. <laughs>
0: I was thinking of self sabotage uh, also after Hillary mentioned mechanical, the, the mechanical question. And I think it does, I mean, obviously, because of the root, apocryphal or otherwise, of the word, I think there's a mechanical implication, but I think also an institutional implication. Some of what Josh was getting at at the beginning was like the disruption of institutions. And I think self sabotage, for better or worse, is exactly that. It's the, it's the, Disruption of the aggregate set of selves that you understand you are, either intentionally or unintentionally, and then the desire to fuck shit up to cause anarchy in that system, one way or another, and a awesome. better mentor, otherwise.
2: Oh, I was just gonna. I I think that something that's interesting about the idea of self of self sabotage is. I mean, this again connects to Josh's like you know positive action versus negative action question is that like in general like you know it's self-sabotage reveals like the self you're supposed to be right i mean like we you know we think like when you say like this person is engaging in self sabotage what we're saying is like uh you know uh with an unbeknownst unbeknownst like you're sort of revealing some kind of like truth I was, I was just also going to throw out there that I, I think something that's interesting about the idea that sabotage comes from throwing the sebo into the machine, if that if that's right, is that like then it also is, you know, like in that version of what the word is, it suggests like historical conflict anyway. Right. Because the the clog, the wooden clog are like the footwear of the of the peasantry. Right. You know, and the point of like the clogs is the high soul that like keeps you up out of the mud i mean you know and so obviously like as industrialization goes on like footwear chant footwear changes footwear changes too also because like you begin to have shoes made in different kinds of ways or whatever but so you know there is there is something in that that suggests like a clash between historical or orders as well um I feel like we should, Josh. I know you had something you wanted to say. And then I feel like we should just get into the movies because uh we could probably ramble on about this.
1: Um for the entirety we, of two hours. More than more yeah. than we need to. Definitely. Uh I I was just gonna say two things. Um, it does sound like there is some kind of implicit notion of futurity that always attends sabotage, where uh you know, the saboteur knows what the future is going to be, has a clear concept of like where quote unquote where things are headed, right? And is trying to choose something different, trying to interrupt that direct line between now and into the future in some way. Now that doesn't necessarily have to have like, you know, a left or, or, or communist um political valence to it, obviously. I can I think it can absolutely be um. Ah, uh, commandeered by, you know, right wing uh, forces, for sure. Um, but I, I another thing I just was thinking about, too, was, do you guys remember in two thousand and eight um, I think his name was Muntadar al Zaidi, the Iraqi journalist who threw his shoe at yeah. George Bush. Yeah. Uh, th- so I'm just I'm just thinking like, you know, the 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 shoe is a very powerful political uh, object that uh, that one ought to
3: write a a little essay on. Um, that was that was king shit, though, not peasant shit. That was king shit. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, didn't also Chris Jeff Pounds's shoe on the lectern. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of sho- shoes. Yeah. Shoes are guys.
1: <laughs> we have an essay. This is how the magic well, happens. what else
3: <laughs> right, right-wing sabotage is just called false flag operations, and yeah, yeah, like on, the uh, communists. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> like the Reichstag fire. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally, or um, or other, or other controversial matters that we don't have to go into. Um, but
3: uh, Reichstag fire, very controversial. <laughs> <laughs> uh
2: so yeah, let's. I mean, let's introduce the let's introduce the movies and um, kind of see where we go because because I actually think. Strangely, all of these things that we have said without planning what we were going to say, I do think speak to to a lot of stuff that's interesting in both of these movies and both movies in the end, like do seem to pose like they're both are interested in kind of posing a certain question about the human that seems to take us into into like a realm that's at least ostensibly meant to be different than the kind of like uh, the historical um, which which I think is kind of you know potentially an interesting thing to think about. But anyway, uh, Bill and Josh, you want to say a little bit about these uh, these filmies we watched?
0: Let's do it on obstructive viewing. What we'll try and do is give we're we're not going to be a spoiler free kind of show. So we'll give a little summary of the the film that we're talking about and maybe a little context for it as well before we jump into the discussion on uh, on our show which this halfway is. So I'm going to give a quick rundown of Sorcerer. If you haven't seen it, dear listener, then you need to remedy this right away because it's just a a tremendous film. Sorcerer tells uh, the harrowing journey of four men with troubled pasts who come together in a remote South American village. We've got Nilo, a Mexican hitman, Kasim, a Palestinian resistance fighter, Victor, a French baker, and Jackie, an Irish American lobster. Um, Local resistance groups in the area have sabotaged an American company's oil well, it's a raging inferno, the four men are hired by the oil company to drive a couple of trucks of, surprise, very volatile nitroglycerin, through 200 miles of treacherous jungle terrain so they can blow out the fire. Uh, The men are desperate for money and to escape their circumstances, so they sign up for this suicidal mission that is not just a test of physical endurance, but also of trust and desperation. Um, Sorcerer has a whole bunch of intersections with its cultural milieu um it comes out in 1977 so we're we're in the shadow of the oil embargo of 73 where we've got panic gasoline shortages skyrocketing prices um and sorcerer the drive to increase production in the well i think is directly signaling to that um, much like the 70s political unrest wars lousy economies these protagonists in sorcerer they're all men who due to their various circumstances circumstances perhaps We might even call it self-sabotage, find themselves in a remote part of the world, away from their home countries. And it's also got a whole Cold War vibe of mistrust, necessary alliances, um, enemies becoming partners in the face of mutual threat. The movie had an absolute uh, 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 Herzog-esque nightmare shoot in the jungle, then kind of bombed on release and uh, was a dark mark on Friedkin's career for a while. But I think he called it his very favorite movie, and it's easy to see why. Um, that Sorcerer. Josh, introduce us to The Train.
2: Josh, you're muted.
1: Rookie mistake over here, God. Um, we can cut that, right? Anyway, yeah.
2: No,
3: it's, uh, it's
2: definitely, it's definitely going to be in. Oh, for f-
3: <laughs> now, it's going to be. It was going to be clean, but now Hillary like had to like out you. So I,
1: I'm i going to get hate mail from all the maroon heads out there. Um, they're going to dox me. <laughs> that's all they
3: send, and that's all they do. Is that's why I've <laughs> been recording. I've been in hiding from the doxing. <laughs>
1: Okay. Okay. Sorry. The, the train. <clears throat> the train is based actually on a true story, but um, it begins on the eve of Paris's liberation from Nazi occupation in 1944. Colonel Franz von Waldheim, played by Paul Schofield, knows the Nazi war effort is lost, so he plans to smuggle expensive art out of Paris and into Germany before the Allies regain control of the city. So the Nazis load a bunch of Cézanne, Renoir, Manet, Gauguin, Matisse paintings, and et cetera, uh, onto a train headed for the border. French resistance <laughs> fighters, led by Paul Labiche, played by uh, the one and only Burt Lancaster, must do everything they can to prevent the train's entrance into Germany. So they perform all kinds of little acts of sabotage that slow the train down over the course of a few days. Um, like they clandestinely switch the tracks and reroute the train back to Paris and they like stage, uh, like the small German town to like convince the Nazis on the train that they're actually in Germany when really they're heading back to France. It's very, very fun, very clever. Um, but in the end, the Nazi war machine kills like a ridiculous amount of resistance fighters, uh, all for a bunch of paintings. And uh, that's kind of the central thematic thrust of the film. And in the end, there's a standoff between the colonel and Labiche uh, that meditates very hard on this point. Um, what what was it all for? Uh, and Labiche, who is this lowly French proletarian, you know, why why does he sacrifice himself for these high artistic values uh, that he, as as a proletarian has no access to? Um, and it's kind of like a strangely sophisticated ending. I I wonder if, you know, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go, we'll go deep into it. But, um, basically everybody dies at the end and the art remains marooned on the tracks as, uh, as Paul Labiche, Burt Lancaster, just sort of solemnly limps away. Um, and okay. So some ideas and questions that I had, by the way, it's directed by John Frankenheimer. Um, forgot to say that in the beginning, but, um, And, and it was, it was filmed in 1964. So I had a couple like questions and ideas. Um, One, what do we think money is doing in the film kind of plays an interesting central role as an object of sabotage. Uh, And also, you know, there's a, there are these interesting meditations on value, right? And then also historical context, right? This is, you know, 1964. So is the film kind of low key about Vietnam and the Cold War? Maybe, I don't know, um, are there some hints of uh, like Korea as well in there possibly? I think that the opening scene definitely tries to take aim at this like thinly veiled concept of like a ministry of culture, um, you know, or any like state-sponsored artistic committee. So there's definitely this this heavily like ideologically inflected point at the very beginning of the film. Um, But also I I think what's kind of interesting about the film too is that there's this connection between art and the nation form too. And, and like national citizenship Uh, and like, what is, what is that doing there? How does, how does art define the citizen? Uh, What does it mean to fight for a nation? Maybe that also like is kind of playing into the anxiety of of Vietnam too. And, and the cold war um, in some, in some kind of nuanced way. I don't know. Maybe we can talk about that. and then, yeah, there are like plenty of uh, examples of like small, tiny, clever, like micro sabotages in the film that I thought were really fun uh, that maybe we could we could talk about, too. So, um, yeah, where do we want to start? Any any ideas, Matt and Hillary?
2: Well, I think it would be interesting. I don't know if it's the best starting point, but it, it would be a little interesting to talk about, like, the question of nation in in both of in both of these movies and. Um, uh because i think that bill you said like you know south american country i think it's definitely supposed to be Colombia that they're in in sorcerer so so like you know we're there we're getting like a, a also there's a specific resistance movement um uh and we have this international framework at the beginning of that movie and i read on wikipedia that like In the when they were screening when *Sorcerer* is busy bombing at in movie theaters, they put like placards up in the um, lobby that said the first the first twenty five minutes of this movie are in languages other than English, but it is an English language movie because apparently people like were walking in and being like, "Oh, it's a foreign movie," and leaving. I don't I don't know. Anyway, sort of sort of hilarious. Um, And then that is this like in um, one one of the things that I think is like kind of fascinating about the train is like we get a number of speeches that I think we're sort of supposed to take seriously. And then maybe we're supposed to revise what we think at the end about how the stuff that's on that train is like the heart of France, uh, the patrimony of the French nation, like this whole list of things. Um, Part of what's kind of like, hilarious about that is like none of the paintings that are on the train were painted prior to probably about 1890 um you know and since it's like what 1940 i don't know what year paris is liberated but you know what i mean it's like sometime at the end of the second world war like like the patrimony of france then like extends back approximately 50 years which is like a very so there's this whole thing about like modern modernity modernity there too and then that turns into in that movie it turns into this kind of like contest between like um you know as josh as you were saying this thing about value um and like you know i sort of something i wondered about sorcerer was like also there like how seriously are we meant to take like the international framing you know like um the sort of like you know like there's clearly a kind of there's a sort of exoticism to the way in which like the colombian jungle is used and and indigenous people although also we get the sense of like you know possibly like resistance or subversion on the part um of the indigenous people we see in that movie also anyway whatever that's that that would be one thing that i might think would be interesting to start with (laughs)
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, also, what do we think of, like, the ending of Sorcerer, where I think that there's this kind of, like, sentimental resolution, like, global resolution at the end? Do you remember, like, at the very end, uh, uh, Roy Scheider has that dance with that worker, that kind of, like, really weird, like, romantic yeah. moment that feels really gross <laughs> and, and and icky, uh, but it feels like that that is trying to attend to some kind of like you know um uh I don't know Global sentimentality where it's like you know we're Americans and and proletarians uh, you know in the global South it's like we're all we're all in this together at the end of the day you know and we we needn't uh let sabotage and and terrorism tear us apart or something like that um there there's a lot of like strange yeah moments of like yeah I don't know re reuniting attempting to like yeah heal some kind of you know geopolitical rift in in some in some way I don't know
0: it's it's interesting Josh I that ending scene I like that read of it um I was just thinking that I feel that I see I see that as one read I also see it as like you know he there's a moment where Roy Scheider's character dies out in the desert like obviously he like gets the he gets everything back and he shows up but he has there's that incredible like alien landscape montage hallucinatory scene where he he comes out of that looking like a corpse like he's just a faded being after that you know whenever he comes back to the town but I think in some ways it, it's interesting in thinking about the the about national identity about the state that anytime there is sort of like all of these guys are doing this to get out of the situation they're in, but also anytime there's something like a reference to going back home or any possibility, then it's immediately extinguished. So there is there is no return home. There is no unity possible. Um, the scene where Victor is talking to Kasim about... The watch that his wife gives him and he he makes this for the first time we get we get some backstory on him that's not the prelude and he's like oh it's four o'clock in paris or whatever it is and then at that moment that's when that's when their truck blows up and he's gone so it's like even letting his mind wander back to paris out loud in that moment ends his ends his life um Roy Scheider at the end, you know, he has the dance, the sort of last scene before the last scene where, again, it seems like maybe he can go somewhere. He's dressed to travel. He's got the money. He's he's pulled this off. Um, But that dream is not allowable either. So there is no, no. The statelessness continues. There is no possibility of a state in some ways.
3: yeah i mean i think the also the real ending i mean that's one ending of sorcerer but then the real ending is where the two hitmen show up right after that like had he not kind of like it's almost Mm -hmm. as if if, had he not stopped to dance with that woman um then he might have been able to leave a split second earlier and have missed missed the hitmen who are following him and so and the hitmen represent not you know in a certain way, not the state at all, but a like, but like the kind of para-state of like the mafia, um, that is like chasing him into this this kind of realm of criminality that all the characters in uh, in Sorcerer uh, exist in and traffic in, which brings them to Colombia in the first place. Whether they're a bank embezzler or uh, a Palestinian uh, freedom fighter or uh, a, 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 a church knockover artist <laughs> or an international assassin or whatever um mm-hmm. uh, and i thought that the i i don't know i think i i take your point about the internationalism of of dancing with the woman i felt it had more to do with the kind of um just a kind of moment of solace and like a reach for some version of um femininity or softness or you know culture or Um, normalcy or something like that in a movie that is like radically devoid of women with the exception of the French guy's wife who he seems to genuinely love but also seems like a vapid um, person Um, and I would say the one one of the mistakes that the train made well not mistakes but one of the things that kind of I think we chatted about how somebody mentioned in the chat beforehand about how long the train felt and I think that that has a lot to do with, um, is it Jean Moreau? Yeah, Her character. Those those scenes really tend to drag. And, you know, the mistake that the train makes that Sorcerer um, avoids is having women in it. You know, they ruin everything. They tend to slow (laughs) things down. Uh, It's really about dudes, dudes rocking, dudes rocking in a jungle or on a train. Right. Um, But primarily dudes and the rocking is what you really want to see in- in most films, I would say.
2: I, I mean, I think, so I would, I want to defend briefly though, the wife uh, of the fr- of the Frenchman who I just kept thinking, oh, it's Inspector McGray because he plays McGray in the, t- uh, anyway, in the TV adaptations. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, lo- I really, I mean, I, lo- I love that actor whose name I can't remember, but Um, uh, she, so when they have the, the one conversation that we see with her, so she, you know, she's like an heiress, um, you know, and we gradually realize, and this obviously matters a lot. I think this is like linked into, um, some things that are kind of coming up in the conversation. Like we realize that he is, he is proletarian, right? Son of a fish, son of a fisherman. Um, but who Pat, he passes so well, apparently, um in the in the world of like high finance even though really he's just like happens to be married to her but i think that scene where she's sitting on the bed and she's like doing her editorial work Mm -hmm. on um uh a book written by a war veteran and he you know she reads him a bit and he's basically like that seems like sentimental bullshit i can't remember what what he says but like um He's like, oh, oh, that guy, oh, so he's just like everybody else or something. And she says something like, nobody is just like everybody else, you know? And that does seem to be, like, this kind of actually insightful m- moment, because, like, in some ways, the, like... Uh, you know that they lay out a problem that the film seems to be sort of interested in which is like the dynamic between like special individuality like the ability to act historically maybe um, and just being like part of the part of the crowd crowd you know, um, but I I completely I think it, it is true also these are like both like ve- they're very masculine movies like part of what's interesting about them and the way that they represent in, in sorcerer, we don't, we don't see the sabotage take place. I mean, that's like a really big, I mean, we see the, we see the oil well blow up, but we don't get to see like um, who's done it, how they do it, any of those things. We just see like the spectacular, like extremely destructive. And part of what's interesting about that in that movie is that like the reaction of the people in the town who so many people are like, killed and burned in this like oil well fire is to be mad at the company and clearly like they've actually chosen the right people to be mad at but the people that they're mad at are presumably not the people who caused the fire you know what i mean um but in in any case like both of these are movies that are like really interested in like a group of men particularly Sorcerer is interested in the group like in i think in the in the train we kind of go back and forth between you know like the, there's the moment where he's like hundreds of people worked on worked on this you know or something like that and it's like we, we see like five you know and in the and and, he, and then like all of the resistance guys in paris are already dead or something you know he's like oh there are only the three of us left anyway but they're both about like groups of men and we're very and both movies are quite interested in like seeing like men at work um, you know, in this, like, really in a, like, you know, we see the guys in the jungle at their various, like, heavy labor jobs, we see them working on the truck, when we're in the, we see so much, there's so much train time in the train, I mean, if you like trains, this would really be a good movie for you, because, like, so many specific, you know, ways of working on a train, even that insane scene where they paint the, they have to paint the top of the train, so the, the British won't Bomb it like they're like really like trying to paint the top of the train really thoroughly in a way that is <laughs> anyway. So that's it, it's an interesting kind of like adjunct to um the way in which both of these movies are are kind of about resistance or resistance versus going along with things or something like that. Is this interest in work and it is a totally like masculine realm? And I agree that Jean Moreau story and the train is just like unnecessary uh
3: they just needed her for like french financing and like the, <laughs> a little bit of european like uh appeal I think.
2: yeah yeah exactly the international yeah, they market need, they needed a french person with a french accent
1: yeah i think the the point of groups uh cooperating with one another is really interesting because again this is like kind of a half-baked thought so just you know bear, bear with me here but um I'm thinking like, okay, these films are coming out in the 60s and 70s. A huge genre, obviously, you know, that's extremely popular is like the conspiracy genre or that starts to kind of take shape, like at the end of the 60s and into the 70s. You know, you have like the parallax view and eventually Videodrome, Three Days of the Condor or whatever, right? And a conspiracy film tends to like end in the destruction of the medium like you know the conspiracy proves to be like so vast and uh so like internationally sprawling and it is like an expression of like capitalist totality itself that like the medium of of film or or even the novel you know whatever can't contain it and therefore this there's always this like explosion at the end right uh but this is in some ways kind of like an anti-conspiracy film Mm. in the sense that like the explosion or like the 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 breakage like happens in the beginning and then it's up to like a group of people men uh proletarian men here to kind of like piece things back together uh in some way and there's this like uh i i think like something that's like incredibly pleasurable about both of these films is watching like the process of cooperation watching like, you know, somebody puts them together over here so that something else is, you know, so that, so that, you know, they can signal to something else, you know, over there or something like that. And there's that like network of cooperation that's like really, really pleasurable to watch, um, which is like totally the opposite of like a conspiracy film where it's like, there's one dude against the world. He can't like, you know, he can't solve the mystery. He can't conceptualize totality and he ends up dying at the end or something like that. Um but I don't know. Yeah, what I I don't know what's what's the relationship to that kind of like if we want to call it a geopolitical aesthetic or something um yeah, and and cooperation is just fascinating to watch on screen. Um and it's represented I think really well in both of these films even if like they're uneven <laughs> narratively speaking in in various ways. I don't know. Something that just occurred to me, Josh, is that all three of the explosions
0: in Sorcerer are representative of cooperation. So when we have Qasim, who sets the bomb in Jerusalem, it's, uh, you know, this group, this small group of Palestinian freedom fighters that have come together to to make this happen. Um, The the oil the the bombing of the oil well we assume that that's I mean it's very easy to read that as group resistance efforts even though they're only represented by a little bit of like melted machinery the timer the blasting mechanism and the third explosion in Sorcerer of course when they have to clear the tree out of the way deeply cooperative project where they're basically like MacGyvering out of the jungle uh a, a setup to 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 get this massive tree out of the way so yeah so not not a full thought other than every explosive act in sorcerer is part of this network of cooperation
3: at the same time those acts of, of those explosions in sorcerer what's really fascinating about them and the the group activity that that um that they that is that they uh come out of is they're all done completely wordlessly mm-hmm no dialogue no explanation of what they're doing it is all an exchange of glances barely even people pointing give me that thing hand me that or whatever um just the kind of so they kind of represent almost i would uh it feels like an innate knowledge of you know what to do and how things work which i don't know if it's, if that is revolutionary or counter revolutionary you know what i mean like um it it Indicates a kind of intelligence, but it doesn't sort of explain or um, unwind that kind of the the kind of in- intelligence that it that it requires. It's not like they are; they just seem to be behaving instinctively. I think I think of also when Roy Scheider is putting the trucks together, he's not figuring it out. He's just like looking, grabbing the piece that he wants, and going over and doing it. Um, so there's a kind of like. I don't know if it's a it's a romantic concept of the worker and the and their kind of like hand handy knowledge of how to do it without kind of um, rendering it in, in, into words that would be kind of that would then be like usable for an audience. It's not how to blow up a pipeline. They don't show you how to make C four. Um, they you know uh, it, it's very sort of um, yeah uh, 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 instinct represented sort of in, as an instinctual. Uh, innate knowledge rather than something learned and transmissible i yeah, mean that's that like... go ahead
2: oh well i was just gonna say i think that's really that is really interest that thought is really interesting to take into trying to think um about the train because one i mean one thing that is a big distinction between the two movies it is just like um Is kind of like the way in which infrastructure is represented, and that I think they're they're probably at least in part has something to do with a movie from the early '60s versus a movie from the late (laughs) late '70s. I mean, in the Friedkin movie, like you know, it's completely insane to think that like why the fuck would you be drilling for oil in this place where like it's impossible to have like to fulfill your infrastructural needs, you know, to the extent that you've just like left a bunch of like, you know, dynamite to slowly ooze away in a cabin in the mountains or something. I mean, but, but the train is so, is really, really focused on like the network of train tracks in France and, uh and Matt, just like thinking about what you were just saying, I m- my read of that movie was that like the Burt Lancaster character, who I just think signs, I mean, a little bit my whole read of the movie was colored by how much time I spent as a child watching Hogan's Heroes, <laughs> which I, I, you know. Whatever. So I, it did feel to me at moments like a kind of a Hogan's Heroes episode, which I know <laughs> tonally was like a misreading. And, it, you know, it's obviously. But in any case, like, I feel like the Bert Lancaster character, who I found kind of confused, I was confused by how we were supposed to think about him. But I think he reads as an American, for one yeah. thing. Um, and, you know, he's like a foot taller than everybody else, too. <laughs> uh, you know, and he also reads as like the manager who knows how things work and he can actually like do all the shit better than the proletarian guys can so that insane scene where um they've like the thing is broken and he's gonna like fix it for the nazi and he has to he stays up all night doing it and we just see him doing every work process you know and it's a lot of like i mean just like his like physicality and we really like see his body and like you know him stretching out and like flexing basically but like he's you know basically like shoo- shooing, all the guys who who in one way or another probably do this every day aside and he's like no i'll be the one who makes that part because of whatever guilt he feels or whatever it is and that i think like so i wonder about his kind of like i mean the end of the movie i do think then creates like a very weird responds to like the way in which he is this kind of heroic figure in a very strange way because we're sort of left thinking at the end like was he actually was he like wrong in doing this you know like there's a kind of like ambivalence there um but i'm just like wondering like how that sort of representation is kind of like connected to this like um just this vision of the railroad you know like um, like, it was so funny to me, I mean, the whole, like, very clever, although I, now that I've said it, I will say, kind of Hogan's heroes the way in which they fool the Nazis by, like, just covering up the, like, <laughs> yeah. railroad signs, I get that this is based on something that really happened, but, like, even that suggests, like, well, if you can, like, con- if you can fool them that way, these, all of these men who are, like, hungering to be back in the motherland or whatever... It also kind of suggests like there's not really that much of a difference between France and Germany because it just like it depends on what the sign says, you know, anyway.
1: Uh, Bill, I know you wanted to respond to a point, but I also just wanted to throw in here that Bert Lancaster's like utter refusal to affect anything that approximates a French accent is so funny to me. He's just like, That's... he's just like, I'm going to just talk in my American accent. Like, who, who cares? Was... Like. That that's, was not
3: his. That was not his game.
1: That, that
3: was not as <laughs> an actor.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah. He's like, he's like, I know what my game is, and I'm sticking to it. That's called sabotage, Jacques. <laughs> like, that's, that's like how he would be like, that's that's sabotage.
3: <laughs> um, I'll just say I'll I'll drop one of my uh, nuggets, uh, my knowledge nuggets. Do you guys all know what Burt Lancaster did before he was a movie star? Right?
2: No.
0: Was he a circus a,
3: circus acrobat? Trapeze. So that is why his athleticism is one of his main appeals as a star, is that he is always running, jumping, flying through the air. Um, and this is one of the great appeals of this film, too. That scene where he is forging metal and then repairing a train is incredible. But all the running and jumping and jumping over uh over over roofs and stuff like that. Yeah, that's all him. He could do that stuff. He was just an incredible, like, athlete and like physical performer. I don't think. I think in, initially, you know, they had to build up his kind of acting chops in his first few um, roles because he was just, you know, he was just this great physical uh, actor. And um, over time, he 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 gained some more acting chops, but but accents was not one of them. Anyway, the
0: first scene, the first scene where he slides down the ladder Mm -hmm. uh, from the overhead bridge, and you realize like there's not a cut. You're like, oh, that's actually Burt Lancaster. It's really invigorating, and it like it it is part of the dynamism of the film. Um, And I was thinking about the like the 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 gearing up the truck scene in Sorcerer, the mechanical scenes on the train. They're both interesting because, like, th- they are scenes we've seen a thousand times before, like the uh, the gearing up scene. Um, but they don't work like regular gearing up scenes. Like in Sorcerer, when they're building the truck, it's exactly as we observe. Like, there's no focus on like a teaming these trucks into making them some kind of optimized thing. It's like let's just get this shit to run. Like. There's mismatched headlights. They're operating on three different switches for one truck. It's not just it's not like let's get the best mirror. It's just let's get a mirror on there. And the focus is on the men doing the work of repairing the truck, not on the not on the, the technology, not on the equipment. And it's very much that way, I think, in the train too, which was it was reminding me of that scene toward the end. When Land, when Bert Lancaster when what's his name? LeShef? No, that's James Bond. LaBish When LaBiche is wiring up the tracks, you know, trying to stay just ahead of this train. And we get this really long shot of his hands doing the wiring, but it's not the, it's not a shot. I, I would take it to not be a shot of the plastique or of the wiring, but of his hands doing this work. So they're very, yeah, it's just a very interesting, it's a very interesting version of a fairly common trope um, of these guys doing the stuff. Not um, the stuff. It's not the stuff. All the stuff is run down and broken. Like these aren't fine trains. This is these aren't good trucks. This is old dynamite. We're we're using the even the sabotage materials are so quotidian. You know, we've got signs. We've got a rag. We've got franks. We've got a pipe. Um, it's it's all just utterly everyday.
2: I mean,
3: it's the, it. Oh, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. Go right, No, go ahead. The, I was oh. going to say the the. Mm conditions of possibility of sabotage this gets back to what hillary was saying about um the train itself and the and the railroad you know more generalized as a kind of super object or something like that you know the conditions of possibility of sabotage are presented in this film as intimate knowledge of the workings of the thing that you are needing to sabotage and in the context of this film um in world war ii it um the politics of it become very complicated because obviously from a certain perspective, all the people continuing to work on the railroad uh, are collaborators, right? They are making the make literally making the trains run on time for the Nazis. And yet at the same time, had they not been in that position, they would not be in position to do these acts of sabotage. And so it then becomes like incumbent upon them to know when and how to sabotage things so that they don't get caught so they can continue the act of sabotage um and that's the only reason that they um are able to do the sabotage but also the only reason that they are in the position to be in the good graces of the Nazis and like we see at the very beginning of the film that you know one of their members is caught like Lancaster gives the speech you know uh the the woman from the art uh museum comes to them and says listen, the Nazis are going to cart off. What is it? The heart of France, the treasure of France, the her- heritage of France. I think she says legacy.
0: She says, yeah, exactly. All these words, right?
3: And, you know, you need to stop them. You need to stop this train. And they're like, oh, we'll blow up the train. And she's like, no, you can't. You can't blow up the train because there's art on it. And that's what's important about it. And um, and Lancaster gives a speech. There used to be, you know, 18 of us. Now there's four. And one of the guys said, "Oh, they get the other guy now because now it that for that guy yesterday there were five of them and now there's only four. So like they're these this team of saboteurs is being constantly eaten away, right? Um, uh, By by the like grinding Nazi Nazi war machine. Um, So that like and and part of that kind of so that intimate knowledge of the machine of the institution that you're trying to sabotage is necessary, and that the railroad." is a you know perfect avatar of that kind of thing because it requires, as Bert Lancaster says, hundreds of people to operate, you know, in a networked environment um, sending signals to each other, understanding what those signals mean, implementing the kind of directives that those that those signals um, indicate are are necessary. Um, and it has to be all done with like an enormous amount of precision um and and sort of uh care um and then i i think the other thing that we want to get around to later but i won't continue droning on is is that connection in that film well both films really uh i guess the way money connects to uh and the flow of money connects to the concept of sabotage but what money represents and and uh, what represents money in in these films um and it they kind of fraught position of um, of just, of, of, of money.
1: I, I just want to, um, contribute to that real, really quickly, Matt, because I think that's a really interesting, uh, I think, dialectical thought. We could use that word. Uh Uh-oh, everybody watch out. Uh, but, uh, the capacity for sabotage is conditioned by one's, um, complicity then in that working machine is it, at least that's how it's like represented in maybe in these in these films it's that's pretty interesting i think that's i think that's a good i think it's a good idea
2: can i can i just say speaking of sabotage uh this weekend in chicago is the fucking air the air show that and oh uh, fuck. yeah plane planes war planes are flying low over i'm like on the flight path from o'hare bill bill is too but yeah
0: yeah, yeah we live in the same neighborhood and i think both just heard the same very loud airplane fly overhead
2: loud. Um, luckily
0: it saw the white paint on the tops of our houses
2: and flew <laughs> <on>. <laughs> what a ter- terrifying i mean something i so something that i think so um matt i'm still thinking about your point about like knowledge versus like this sort of like instinctive you know um uh instinctive action or just like you know a kind of like whatever just like doing it by feel or something um i think that's really interesting and i feel like that maybe it plays out in the two movies maybe in different ways and i was just thinking about and then thinking about money um uh uh my sister just texted that when the plane went low over our, our house, one of her cats was eating and the food fell back out of his mouth. He was. <laughs> 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 oh, <laughs> Milos, it's awful. Take.
3: A uh, cat anyway. a spit take. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: what? Uh, um, but so I was thinking about the, um, the, the chubby, the chubby old guy who is like, I'll I'll I'm, a, I'm a, train I'm an engineer, I'll get that train out of there or whatever. You know, like he, Papa, he, Bull. he
1: Papa, Bull. Papa Bull,
0: Papa Bull, Papa
2: Bull, who hilariously is probably like one year older than Bert Lancaster is, but like is a very, <laughs> a very old man, which mostly seems to mean that he's like fat. I don't, I don't know, whatever. But he's like yeah. the com- you know, like whatever, kind of like comedic. Um but I was thinking about the sort of um You know, so he is the only person we see because he's not apparently part of the resistance. He just hates, he hates the Nazis and he wants to do something. Um, And so he himself sabotages his own train. And we see that whole thought process, right? Because he's like having his little morning, morning wine and coffee or whatever. And like, gets his like change in he asks for francs um so he's got coins in his pocket and he does it with a coin um uh but then like it turns out to be a stupid way to do it because like the germans actually know that that's a way and he's just like kept his greasy francs in his pocket and so that and then they then they just like the nazis just like shoot him immediately and you know like i mean in this boat this so we have the, this thing, I think, comes up in the, the movie over and over again. And at first, I think you don't. Maybe this is actually linked to something like self-sabotage in some ways. But, like, at first it seems like an incidental theme. But ultimately, maybe it is the theme of the movie, which is, like, you know, the possibility that self-sacrifice is pointless. Um, and, like, um, uh, you know, because a little bit his, you know, pop up. What's his name?
3: Papa. Papa, boo. Boo. Papa Michel, The great Michel simon from uh La La Dolante. If you've know seen it. Anyway, go ahead.
2: I I've never seen it. But uh he but but we get that you know we get this sort of like sense of like, oh, there's something foolish in the way that he did it, even though like he is actually, you know, like this seems like if if we're if so clearly we're not supposed to think that just like going ahead and like trying to like gum up the works, throw sand in the gears. Um, you can't just do it willy nilly, right? You're so it's supposed to be like part of like some kind of larger plan, right? Or it has to be like you know linked to some larger like strategic situation. Although again, as the movie goes on, like you do have to keep thinking like, is it actually worth it for them to do this at at all? You know, like um, you know, in a way that I I agree. Like by the end is actually like really sort of arresting when you're thinking like, was I rooting for like you know the Gogans to be st- to be saved you know like that's what i wanted to have happen but it is interesting so josh i think you gestured to this in your like little intro it's interesting that he does it with money um and that it's also that he doesn't think to or perhaps can't afford to throw those francs away after he has you know like got used them to like fuck up the oil pan or whatever
0: four francs or four francs
2: yeah exactly you know that like so that the money so that the money is both both object and like well he need he needs it i mean you know uh right cmc
3: i i have and, an interpretation but go ahead josh
1: well i was i was going to say the original like historical event that this is based on uh is a complete like uh it, it was completely motivated by money because i think that like it was like Picasso's like art dealer or something like that. one of the Rosenberg's uh, like one of the Rosenberg's sons was enlisted in uh, in, like in the allied army to go blow up the train tracks that were uh, carrying like all of these, you know, famous like paintings that belonged to his father. Uh, and they just blow, they, they just blew up the train track. And, and then like, I guess like killed all the Nazis, whatever. And then like, recovered all of the paintings um and then there was like a lawsuit like years later uh to like who the the paintings actually belong to but it's like pretty it's pretty clear that like this was like explicitly done for uh for for recuperating like a monetary loss um and then that and, and then like as a screenwriter you know when you read that like story maybe you're thinking like okay that's like you know kind of a cool story but then you're like oh god it really does like in the end, come down to money, which kind of like totally messes with the polarity of like, you know, who you want to root for, who like the antagonist is, whatever uh, in a, in a, you know, in a screenplay. And I feel like the film never really could figure out how to resolve that like fundamental problem of like, this is for money. And that's pretty vulgar. And I don't know what to, you know, and I don't know what to do about it. So Yeah, it just feels like it feels like, you know, if we're talking about like a political unconscious here, there's like some kind of like, you know, unresolved contradiction that the that the film is almost trying to like, make conscious, but like, in doing so, the film ends up becoming like kind of uneven, because yeah, we're, we're left at the end being like, yeah, was was this all for money? Like, also, am I getting bored with this film, too? Because I don't really understand what the stakes are other than like saving, you know, the, the heart of France who gives a shit, you know, I don't know. So I don't know. I'm just throwing, throwing all of that out there.
3: Okay. Here we go. Ready? Okay.
1: So let's hear it um,
3: Here's my interpretation of the Papa bull characters attempt. You know, he's, as you said, Hillary, he, it's a kind of a foolish attempt, right? I mean, even I think Lancaster tells the Nazis, he's an old fool, you know, don't do this, don't kill him. And they've gun him down. Right. Um, I think that because it's an old trick of using Franks to gum up the works in a train. And so, and this is the oldest conductor on the train, right? So he's both like, he's trying to, he's not part of the resistance movement, but he's trying to prove that he's the old guy still got it. You know, I can still drive the train. This is my train. I know how to do it. And he's using a tactic probably that he knew from decades ago when you were trying to trick your supervisor into saying the train doesn't work because I don't want to go on the train right now. I want to delay the train because I want to stay in, uh, you know, shot with my girlfriend or something, or I want to just get drunk. Um, so it's a, it's a trick that they use on their supervisors in a world where their supervisor isn't going to shoot them to death. If the train is, is right. We're now in a different regime. We're in a Nazi regime. We're in like a, kind of like a, the, the, the nightmare of, of, of you know modern nazism uh and and labor relations and that's 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 not a cute trick anymore and but it is like you know it's so, something that is so tied to the nation though right give me my change in francs we we in francs we see him say that and we think oh it's just being patriotic no there's a payoff later because the Frank is the perfect size to fit in this little gasket or whatever that is going to, that is going to come up the work. So it's this kind of attempt to um, as the, from the old man's position to, you know, um, prove that, cause he's been told, you know, you know, you're, what you're carrying is the heart of France, these paintings that no one has ever seen. Like these proletarians have never seen them. Right. Um, and they don't. And like, according to the Nazi, you wouldn't appreciate them, even if you saw them right? So there's this like pretension to like intellectual and cultural uh, ownership that uh, doesn't extend to the, to the working, to the working class. And this working class guy, this old guy is trying to make, make an attempt to, to, to join that club and to prove his, his Frenchness. I think Frenchness is really the key. What is at Mm -hmm. stake, right? Um, Ultimately, because the money. So the monetary value of the paintings. So the German, the Nazi, who's in charge, who wants to take the paintings back to France. In the beginning, he seems to have a genuine care for the paintings and a genuine appreciation for them. And I think he maintains that appreciation throughout. Even at the end, in this final speech to Bert Lancaster, he is contemptuous of Bert Lang- of Labiche because it's like, if you saw these paintings, you wouldn't, you wouldn't like them, you wouldn't understand them, you, you. You don't have the, the the knowledge to understand them. I understand them. I'm of the the elite. You know, I'm of the kind of aristocracy, this new uh, master race, whatever. I understand them and I appreciate them. He also appreciates them. I I would say equally, not primarily or not secondarily, but equally as uh, we have to save them because this is billions of Deutschmarks that we can spend on the war effort. His idea is that. We're going to take these back to Germany and somehow profit, and then somehow the Nazi war machine will continue to grind on. One of the supreme ironies of the final moment of the film is that you know the the Allies are marching into Paris, which which is which means that they have to get the the the, the paintings back to Germany as quickly as possible. Um, but also, like by that time, in night in late 1944, the it was only a matter of time. No amount of money was going to save the the Nazi regime from defeat, um, it, imminent defeat, right, uh, within the next year. So all of this was was in a sense for nothing, both on the on the part of the Nazis, right. But of course, the Nazis are the supreme villains of history. Like they don't care if their soldiers die, so long as like the 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 regime um, uh, uh, lives on, the Reich lives on, right the the complexity and the tragic irony of you know Bert Lancaster's position is he goes from you know not really caring about the paintings as paintings so much I, I mean he is he does actually embody the kind of um, thing that the Nazi chief says it's like I don't understand I've never seen these paintings. I don't really care about these paintings. I'm a railroad man. He he's a he's a manager. He definitely is a manager, like Hillary said. But he's a manager that kind that got promoted up right. from the working class because that's why he knows how to do literally everything there is. So he's and it he has to be played by an American in that regard because that's what Americans do is they work them, themselves up into a managerial position from which they can then dip back into the proletariat in case they need to 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 finish the job. He starts out from the, mo- the movie not caring about the paintings, but really just being anti Nazi, like wanting to stick it to the Nazis. And there's something uh, that he shares with several of his compatriots where some of them, um, ev- I think they eventually get worn, war- uh, 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 warm up to the idea of saving the heart of France, of understanding that these paintings are more than just paintings, um, that they represent some kind of cultural heritage, you know, and the Nazi it, at the beginning. Points out that they are degenerate art, so that they ought to be destroyed. But he's going to say, "No, I'm going to protect them because actually they're worth a lot of money. We can sell them to to continue the the regime. Um, some of them, so the the French uh, saboteurs get won over to the idea that this this is the heart of France and they are worth saving. And we can't just blow up the entire train. We have to do this sort of delicately. and And once those guys die one by one, mo- the motivations of Bert Lancaster become extremely mysterious to me and uh, they get a lot more cloudy because yeah. is he doing it to avenge his friends to stick it to the nazis or finally you know to save the art and to save the art is the last thing on his mind actually it's it, it becomes a revenge story so that when he finally is able to um stop the train in this amazing scene where he like just undoes a thing of and then the train fall like a thing of track and the train falls I mean, the nuts and bolts, literally, of this sabotage is uh, are, are really remarkable to see. So that by the time he actually um, stops the train, it coincides exactly with a kind of a German column fleeing Paris, and they have to, and, and the 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 colonel, the Nazi colonel, stops that that column and says, "Get all your men off of the off of these trucks and load up the trucks with the art. We're going to drive the art." And then the guy who's in charge of that. Um, column who under who who is under him in rank I think he's a major he's like no screw you I'm not gonna do that um everybody get back on the trucks and drive away they leave all the art there this is just summary now um but then this is where the Nazi gives um Bert Lancaster his big speech and this is what leaves us so troubled at the end of the film is what was all this for um because right at the end as the Nazis are leaving, they kill, they machine gun all the French hostages that they had on the engine of the train that prevented Bert Lancaster from simply blowing up the engine because he was saving people. He wasn't saving art. He does not care about that because what is the heart of France? What is Frenchness? Is it the people or is it the culture? And it turns out that they could only save the culture. They couldn't save the people. Like Bert Lancaster, he couldn't save the people. He could only save the culture. And that's still not important to him. He walks away kind of, Um, bereft and we then are left in this like tragic ambiguity of you know what was really accomplished here because again it was all for naught like the nazis were going to be defeated anyway um and these people these complete innocents um died were gunned down so the ending that we want is the zizekian ending of course is what do you want to do is say to Bert Lancaster la to say no Destroy the art. You Now, it's your responsibility. You must bomb the train and destroy the art because to take revenge against the Nazi and his culture, you want to destroy the culture, destroy it.
2: I mean, and I mean, just to sort of, I mean, I think I sort of agree. Unusually, I think I agree with Slavoj Žižek there um, because if you think about that, I mean, I think the film like creates this sort of problem that actually, um, it, it creates this problem right at the beginning because the Nazi, who's by the way clearly British, I mean, and therefore like in some ways, I think, uh, well, whatever, I think he occupies this strange position in which like we get the sort of association of high culture with with the Europe with the European. Right. And there is this kind of ambivalence, right? Because, like, he's a bad Nazi, but also, yes, like, he actually appreciates the art. So, I think to me, like, maybe the most interesting scene in the movie. Which is so different than the bulk of the movie, which really is an action an action movie, with these like I mean, they're like Michael Bay levels of explosions in the movie. Completely crazy. Wild. And the idea that you were doing this with actual trains, like this was like, I mean, these are both of these movies, like what insanely laborious shoots these must have these must have been. But that first scene in which we're in the museum um and he has and it's clearly like this is where he's been hanging well in paris um and he has set up the spotlights to focus on his favorite paintings so we have a gauguin and i there's like a maybe it's a renoir or something i mean they're like you know they're actually the i think actual paint actual paintings but not nazi eluded paintings in the end but um and then she, the art lady, comes in. Fant- fantastic, really a fantastic, very bizarre character, a very bizarre version of the of the feminine. Um, she comes in and like, but but they're in this space that it's they're in a theater space, right? I mean, like it's theatrical. This is like theatrical lighting. Um, it's a kind of intimacy with a work of art that like you don't have in a, in a museum that the public can go into. And also that most people who are art collectors don't have in their own homes either, because like, it is both a museum and just this like intimate space. And I think very theatric. I mean, like literal theatrical lighting and each painting opens up as like, you know, the little, the little world. Right. And so there's, there's something in that. I think that like, um, you know and that's actually like very alluring and you know like we're 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 jarred out of it like very quickly because very quickly he proves to you know just be a real nazi and not like you know the art appreciator nazi who's therefore not a nazi or something but i do i do think there's this kind of like um you know he, he it does seem like he takes he the nazi guy i can't remember what his name is like takes um you know, he's the he believes in like, you know, the erratic value of these works of art. And he's willing to like take the like money part of it as um, you know alibi as a way to get this stuff out but like he clearly just wants to be alone with it and he's also in those scenes like happy to be alone with it with this like french lady i mean you know who presumably gives him like art historical tidbits or something as they like you know hang a different hang a different painting up or whatever um but you know like i think this is like the kind of like it uh so so in some ways you know i feel like there's a way in which this is a movie I mean, like Frankenheimer made TV shows, right? I mean, wasn't he like a TV director before he was a, a film director? But in some ways, this is a movie that like definitely is like, part of its concern is with like the art status of movies. Right. And it might be that like an American movie, the, pla- the plans are going over again. It might be that like an American movie is not supposed to be like a jeweled little art house thing you know it's supposed to be something else with bert lancaster doing his own stunts and like shit blowing up and it might be that you know like the the movie claims that for like the human right you know like that's that's the the human side but what's crazy about that ending is exactly that like you know, I think the, the it's hard to tell what Labisha's motivation is throughout, right? Because like, he's the one who's like, let's not do this stupid risky thing. You know, he's the one who seems to have the bigger historical picture in mind. You know, the allies are coming in, like, there is no reason to keep doing this stuff. Um, and then I wonder, like, you know, is it the sort of like, he turns to, you know, like I'm thinking about him rolling down the hill, that crazy scene. Oh, yeah. Again, obviously actually Bert Lancaster rolling down quite a steep hill. Um, you know, like he turns to a kind of like automaticity, right? Yeah. You know, like, um, uh, which is and actually like that, I think is sort of what happens in Sorcerer 2 with the like um uh uh with the Roy Scheider character, like after everybody else is dead and he's, you know, like having this like hallucinatory moment, he also becomes the automaton, you know, like who's, who himself will be, you know, he's he's going to carry the box of like nitroglycerin or whatever it is, you know, like, uh anyway, I just lost my, I lost my yeah. train of thought. But I think it's, I think in the, in the train, like the, the status of the art object is like, I think that it's actually quite interesting and whether that like, how to think about that alongside the sort of like the dynamic of sabotage Right. or whether it's really, it is like that our, you know, our own, um, I don't know. Is it just like our own expectations, like getting sabotaged by the end? Cause, cause I think it's hard not to buy into like, I, oh God, you know, it would be terrible if we didn't have those Renoirs or whatever, like, you know. Okay. It's, it's funny. One was... person
3: says, "One person says, like, don't you have copies of them?" And they like yeah. look at him like. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, I was just thinking about getting caught up, you know, ca- caught up in the inertia of the mission, and was thinking back then about Sorcerer, that particular scene right before the sort of trans- full transformation of Shyder into the automaton, where Shyder and Nilo encounter who I presume to be the Fark fighters who also maybe blew up the oil well, and you get this sudden contrast moment of like, oh, okay, in this scene, Roy Scheider and company are the Nazis and the resistance fighters are the folks that they're about to kill. So also thinking back into our conversation about complicity, um, yeah, what what am I trying to to say is like, When you have that inertia, like the inertia of sabotage, like all you're doing is trying to dismantle, I wonder if it, yes, is it even sabotage at that point because it sort of loses some, or when it loses its political foundation and is just its own inertia, is it even sabotage anymore at that point? Like we. The assumption is like when the FARC revolutionaries come out of the jungle, I think their assumption is correct. Like here's a couple of gringos driving supplies to the oil company, which we desperately need. Like they get excited when it's like toilet paper, food, medicine, like this is stuff we actually need. Um, And then again, what's in the crates in both scenes is ultimately useless to the folks who are really, uh, who are the resistors. They don't need nitroglycerin you know they 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 can bomb an oil well on their on their own they need toilet paper and Tylenol
3: the other I mean yeah I think the that ending of the ending of um sorcerer is also I mean it's triply ironic maybe because like Reish, first because Roy Scheider survives only to be possibly assassinated by these mafia hitmen who've come all the way down to oh, Colombia. <laughs> From New Jersey to take revenge on this guy who didn't even shoot the priest brother of the gangster uh, in the church holdup, which is like an amazing whole scenario. But it's also ironic because uh, it was somebody we said this before, too, is that um, the sabotage is done against the oil company. And the people who work there are all victimized by it. And an amazing scene where the burnt corpses are delivered back to the town. Um, But then, when the oil well is reopened because of Scheider's actions, he's greeted as a hero, and everyone's happy. And of course, the irony there is like the oil company is the source of your of your misery here, people. (laughs) Um, But uh, in uh, the wonderful world of capitalism that we have it's also the only source of money employment right, whatever right. that these people have so it's this um devil's bargain or whatever that they have with the with with the terms of their with with their um with capitalism with with international mm-hmm. capitalism right
2: mm-hmm. i had a thought like, oh sorry josh go ahead
1: No, no no hillary go for it
2: no josh you you.
1: <laughs> well, if you insist, uh, uh, I, I, I yeah, I, I was just thinking about this, um, this idea of like turning into the automaton and like kind of a reduction to, to a basic form seems to be like maybe pervading like both of the, uh, bo- both of the endings of, of these films. And I just was thinking like, maybe it really is genius how the, the, like in the train, the boxes carrying the art are like the last uh, uh, like shots of uh, uh, of the art that you see because they do kind of like take the form of like a bill or like a you know, like a coffin maybe or or like you know some kind of like you know, rectangular mark across the middle, which is uh, you know, emblazoned with like, you know, uh, their supposed value or, or 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 something like that. But like as the form itself, you know, it's just like you know, it's like they're 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 just you know, commodity boxes or whatever, right? They're they're all reduced to some kind of like general equivalent. Uh, so you know, at the very beginning of the film, Hillary, like you were saying, it's like they take this kind of like boutique, you know, uh, appearance, but then at the end, it's like their true appearance, you know, is actually revealed at the very end, and that is you know, the appearance of of the money form, right? At, at the end, they're just like bills, kind of you know, stacked along along the edge of the road that, that are rejected by, uh, Burt Lancaster. Cause like, well, you know, what is also, what is he going to do? Like, you know, with those, like, you know, it's not actual like liquid cash that he can like put in his pocket, you know, as a proletarian can't like possibly lift these, these boxes to then later, you know, put them on a market and, you know, exchange, exchange them for cash or something like that. And that, yeah. And, and, and Bill, I think that your connection to, um, uh to sorcerer is really brilliant too. It's like the the Fark rebel rebels, like what the you know, what are they gonna do with weeping nitroglycerin? You know, nothing. They've you know, and they've already committed the act of sabotage too, so they don't they don't need it, you know. Um
2: right. I anyway. think that's really I mean Josh, I think that's really interesting. That's a, that is that's what I was that's the kind of thing I was thinking too like the, you know, like because it does it does really matter that also like yeah. I mean, it is just the crates at the end with like the stenciled names and then the and then the quantity. It's just like it is like an account book. Right. Um, and there there is nothing that Bert Lancaster can do with them. Right. You know, like lit- there are only you know, like it is not the case that those you know, it is not the case that it's possible for everybody to like for just anybody to like access the sort of like the supposed wealth that's lying there and the other thing and i think that 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 plays like really well with that image of like the crates of you know like i mean just the sheer stupidity of like here's a job that you have to do you know we i mean it looks like the like the um the nitroglycerin or whatever it is is like wrapped the or the you know the dynamite is like it's like wrapped in like a butcher paper or like parchment paper or something like it's a completely absurd you know and then just like put Put in these wood, put in wood crates like in sand in the back of the trucks. I mean, it's like so completely, so completely absurd. And it is like it, all, it is, it is useless, right? There's only like, and it's not even actually clear like why the company needs it anyway because yes they need so they need to in order to stop the in order to stop the well they need some kind of explosive but like are they so unable to get it from anywhere else that they have to have this insane thing happen like it's a real kind of like um the sort of no there there of the whole thing which gets exposed when the FARC rebels are like no actually what we would like is if your truck we are going to kill you yes but we would <laughs> like your truck to be full of full of supplies. Um, and it, it's not full of supplies at all. It's not clear why anyone needs it. You know, like even its volatility is like questionable, given that like Roy Scheider goes, and we don't even know how far it is that he carries the fucking box in his in his hand. You know, like I think that that like that's amazing. And there's a way in which like the sort of the no there there problem I think is there in both movies, and that may suggest also like a certain anxiety about like. Um, about sabotage itself you know that like um that it is not pointed at like you know democratic good or this you know the success you know the liberation of you know whatever we don't we don't you don't know what it's pointed at right you know um the other thing i wanted to say about the about sorcerer that i think is related to this is i think I think there's a little of this in both movies, but I think very clearly Sorcerer is like a return of the repressed movie, you know, and part of the absurdity of like, the whole, you know, like, we have like, okay, internet, I mean, I don't know who the guy, the fourth guy is supposed to be. Is he a Nazi hunter? Is he just like an assassin? Is he a Nazi hunter?
3: I think so because okay. the Palestinian at one point calls him like a Jew bastard or something like that. Jew, that murdering Jew bastard, oh and God. so I think he like killed like that's the first thing we see in Veracruz. That's Cruz. what we
2: see in Veracruz. This
3: guy comes to a hotel and then shoots another guy and then that's it. Yeah, and you're like, what the fuck is going on? So yeah, there's this definitely like heritage of like Nazism, uh, international Nazism. Here and then when they're in the village, of course, like the bartender is German and they keep right. talking to him, like oh, he used to be a you know Reich minister or something like that, right? Right, right. And
0: Marquez, who Nilo kills, is also a former Nazi.
2: It, it's also a Nazi, right? So so we have the so we have the Nazi hunter and the Palestinian resistance fighter, right? And then we have um Roy Scheider, who is just a hood, who is just like one does the stu- the stupidest kind i mean like you know it's basically like just robbing the like what the bingo money from like a church and a priest ends up being killed and then the real problem is that he then like gets in a car wreck i mean you know like uh uh and then i mean and then the french banker who like we don't we have no idea what you know basically like he and you know his brother-in-law do something uh, stupid uh and commit fraud you know some embezzlement
3: scheme or something right? yeah yeah,
2: exactly so we have like the like um so we have two so we have two characters who have like distinctive political kinds of motivations and then two characters who in some ways are like motivation less or are just like are are hustlers basically you know like are on are kind of like on the hustle but the movie like you know over and over again i think like it's about open you know like opening up like the stuff that like you want to like keep tamped down you know and so that like scene where we have like Roy Scheider is suddenly somehow driving through New Mexico strange strangely with those like crazy white rock formations um you know like and he's just like flashing back to like you know, the last bit, I think the last of his flashbacks is just like blood running down like the wet, muddy hillside. I mean, it's essentially like all of the repressed, you know, the whole history of like violence, like all of this stuff that he doesn't think about or hasn't understood is like flashing up for him. Um, And then like, you know, becomes literally like the return of the repressed when randomly some like New Jersey hoods like show up to like mow mow him down in this like, you know, Tiny of nowhere. Tiny town. Yeah, yeah.
3: If those, if those Jersey hoods could get there, couldn't they get fresh dynamite? It's,
2: I know you would really on. think, you would think so. You would think so. Come so on. the point, the pointlessness of it is also, I do think here is like, yeah, like why are they doing this? Well, probably because it's, it's cheap. Right. Right. You know, it's a, it's a sunk costs. Oh, well, yeah. They're we already, we already paid for that shit. You know, yeah. Like, they're paying
3: them like $20,000 to do this. Like it's so, it's such penny, penny stuff i think that the two yeah the two kind of characters without politics the first world characters if you will the frenchman and the american um yeah they have other things that they are they have like a yeah like they 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 lack a kind of politics so they have to find some other motivation for their for their actions in a certain way maybe but i think just focusing on the frenchman for a minute like because he is in this scheme some kind of embezzlement scheme. He works for the family firm, right? And he's convinced his brother-in-law, who's this kind of feckless, you know, nerd, um, uh, effete kind of, you know, uh, the the blood gets thinner as the generations progress. <laughs> we never see the father, but he's like, just go back and talk to your father. Just get some more money out of him. Like, just, just do it. And so that, you know, his whole scheme and then his behavior, like his kind of dismissal of the soldier that his wife is talking about. She gives him this gift of the watch with this beautiful engraving on the back 10 year, year 10 of eternity. It's so such a beautiful sentiment and a beautiful watch. You know, we, we, as the viewer are really thrown into a question of like, does he really love this woman or is he just using her? Like she, like he's using, uh, her brother and her brother um you know kills herself kills himself in the car and then he just takes a powder and goes to Colombia heads but out I am out of here tell my wife I had to go um and you know he is finally eventually he is redeemed right before his death because he shows the what you know he initially he tries to sell the watch to get out of Colombia and it's not expensive enough so that we, that at that moment we're like, oh he doesn't really love her this French bastard. <laughs> Uh, But by the end, you know, by the end, he shows the watch to Kasim and he's like, my my wife gave me that, you know, and it's 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 this time in in Paris right now. That's what time it is where, you know, basically where my wife is and I'm going to get to go back there. And then, of course, he blows up, but not before his his kind of soul is redeemed in the eyes of the of the viewer with Roy Scheider. um, It's a lot creepier because of this kind of like he he's been to the brink of nowhere, of, not- of nothingness, like not, you know, yes, a- automaton for sure, but also zombie, yeah. just this, you know, wraith of a man walking through the dark jungle with a box of and, but the, because it's also unclear, it remains unclear by the end. Why is he doing this? What is he going back for? What is he going back to? He was a small time hood who got in a car wreck with three other guys little tiny crew that couldn't even keep it together. One of the guys in the back seat was about to shoot the other guy in the front seat for just a offhand joke. And he's trying to get back to America so badly. Why? And when we see the jungle and we see this town through his eyes, we see, you know, grueling poverty and uh, you know, backbreaking labor that he performs. We don't see the town as a town as, you know, people are living there. Not everybody wants to go like this is their homes. They have made a life. They, you know, they have a life for themselves that is progressively being taken away by the oil company. You know, he doesn't join the FARC. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that would be, that that would give him something to live for. Instead at the end, there's this incredibly melancholy moment where he's given the money by the guy Arranged a passport, he can go to Managua. He's like, you could go to Managua. You know, there's exciting things happening in Nicaragua in the late 1970s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, instead, he goes in again back to Josh's internationalism. Like, let's just dance with this woman, have a moment of calm and quietness, um, a possible respite from the ravages of international capitalism and international uh, mafiosi. And then, of course, they, they, they show up. Uh, the alternative to international capitalism, alternative uh, international crime shows up right at his doorstep, and now he's got no choice. So it really feels like a very bleak ending, but but with an end with a with a possibility for um, redemption that is just closed off. He doesn't join the FARC like at the end of uh, of the Wild Bunch. Um, uh, Robert Ryan's character goes and joins the Mexican Revolution. Roy Scheider doesn't do that here he, he, he's just surrenders to his fate. I mean, there, there's no, the, the, the film doesn't give him an option of, of escape.
0: Um, it's interesting. Like he escapes to a place that is as the guy tells him at the beginning, like it's a, what whatever he says, like, I don't know, I don't know where you're going, but it's a place nobody's ever heard of and nobody would ever be looking for. Like there is nowhere else for Roy Scheider to go. There is no more nothing to become like he's right. gone to the smallest town in the world. He's become He's shed as much of his identity as he can. By the time he finishes this, he, you know, he's he's an automaton or a walking corpse. Like, um, yeah, the only place to go is a bullet.
2: I mean, and we get, and you know, like th- there is a strong sense that, like, I mean, the Roy Shutter character is very, I mean, weird. I mean, I, you know, like I just like very strange affect, and he's like so skin. I mean, it's just like these, just his big weird eyes. You know, like uh i mean very you know like i i do think there's a way in which like it would be a very different movie if he seemed like relatable in some way but i think you don't really like the frenchman is like quite charismatic you know like um but the roy scheider just like and that scene when like they get (laughs) the tree has fallen across the road and then he just like loses his shit and he's just like you know chopping at stuff with machetes trees. and he's just like so mad and can't figure out what to do um you know the, i mean and there and i think that so i would be interested to hear what you all thought about that scene because i think it's actually the sort of like the building of the device by the palestinian guy is actually like i think a really interesting like variant on the like you know mechanical know-how that we see uh it of sabotage um, but also like what we see of the world in sorcerer i mean i do like i i am kind of interested in like um you know the flashes of like you know like the the like shaman figure they run into on the road who like laughs at them like calling it sor- calling it sorcerer the sense of like something in the ju- something in the jungle you know like i mean there's a very obviously like a, just like a kind of gross interpretation of that but I think it's a little interesting, but, but like what we see of the world, you know, like Elizabeth, New Jersey, it looks like, you know, people going through empty, I mean, like the bride, the bride is like a, you know, terrible, like has clearly like had the shit beaten out of her. Oh yeah,
3: awful, that was the black-eyed bride, oh my god. The black-eyed
2: bride, the priests are just like, you know, venal, like, you know, like,
3: they they're money cha- they're money changers the money yeah absolutely. the money, in the ch- <laughs> yeah, so right. the
2: money changers right. in the temple you know um you know israel is a police is a police state and then like fucking paris like it looks amazing but it does not look like a healthy place to be like that crazy restaurant there you know, that scene is so great with like these like hot house flowers and in super intense colors, and then like focusing on the food. And it's like decadent pink. and disgusting. And it's like, uh, you know, like the color of the the woman is saying, like, oh, you know, they say they have good lobsters in Mexico, but I think the lobster needs cold, cold water or whatever. Just like decadent, like blood colored food, you know, like uh, I mean, there is like a sense that, like, where do you where would you go in this world? Like, you know, like none of these places seem like good good places to be
3: (laughs) yeah i mean like the like in in you know it i think it's so funny too like Veracruz, jerusalem paris elizabeth new jersey (laughs) (laughs) what a great joke but um Yeah. None of them are good places to be. And then the only, and then like this, there's this kind of like, I don't know if it's settler colonialist or first world, or just practical decision to escape to, you know, quote unquote, the middle of nowhere, Um, which also doesn't seem like any kind of escape at all. The jungle, you know, especially viewed through the eyes of these like Europeans who are just, you know, you know, um, thrown down into the middle into the working class and and this you know the uh, a climate where they're not used to and you know all that kind of um uh first worldist kind of views of what south america is probably like and bugs and snakes and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um yeah it they it it is a it is a bleak world that has no kind of nowhere good to go to Mm -hmm. whereas like the train it you know i'm i don't know that i don't know that i see it any in any in it any kind of direct allegories to um korea or vietnam but i definitely see it as still a world war ii film you know 20 years after the fact so with really really rosy colored glasses uh, that overlooks kind of you know some of the nastiness of the 50s and stuff but with a kind of a potential lot for optimism in what's coming forward in the sixties, but also a deep skepticism of what, I mean, that ending is extremely double-edged for that. So, so definitely something, a a film that's like, here's what we definitely don't want is Nazis, but we're not quite (laughs) clear on what we do want as leftists. Do we want art and culture or do we want the working class, you know? And and do we have to sacrifice one for the other?
2: I mean, it's it's interesting in Sorcerer that like, um, I one of the things I like. I mean, there are I I really really like the movie. I thought you know it's great. Like weirdly like um, you know, uh, yeah, really just like a great movie. But one of the things I like about it is that we see um, the French guy and Roy Scheider. Um, the Palestinian guy, we see them like at work before, before the whole, before the explosion, you know, so we like see what they're doing. And like, we get this, like a real like focus on, you know, um, uh, yeah, a real focus on what they're doing as like, you know, like hard labor, brutal labor. Um, but also like all very, you know, they're all like working, they're all doing things that are ultimately going to tend to the destruction of the way in which people are living in the place that they're living you know like these kind of like infrastructural and extractive projects but like we we see those guys like whatever we've thought of them before we see them you know in this like mode of like just practical i mean like actually being being good at doing these kind at doing these kinds of jobs that they have to do
1: Mm -hmm. i i I I just want to say, Matt, I think I, I also agree that it's not like an explicit allegory. like where where's Vietnam like in this in this movie? Probably nowhere. But I was also starting to think too, like, well the Vietnam War is also a war where like American GIS find themselves on the opposite end of like sabotage or like, you know, sabotage is like a primary mode of like resistance from um, the NLF. And I think that you know maybe maybe in some way some way there is like a kind of ideological work going on in the film that says like you know whatever like the 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 Western GI you know or whatever the European like you know soldier can reclaim like uh, sabotage for their side for for you know whatever. Um, so yeah, I I, I don't know, um, possibly, but I I do I, I definitely do read it as a as a World War II film. And then, Hillary, something I was thinking about too, and I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on this: is, uh, what do you think nature or like the concept of nature is doing in Sorcerer, which I think is a little more obvious, maybe, uh, or a little bit more graspable? Um, but in the train, I'm just like. There's no nature. It's just like the whole the whole setting of that film is like industrial railroad or 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 like a kind of wasteland, a bombed out wasteland. It's hard to identify, yeah. Where what what nature is doing? But I do think that at some level there is like something important going on there. I don't know. What do you all think?
2: I mean, I, I, one thing I think is that like in the train, like yeah, you know, so. I mean I I think it, I do think it matter it it matters a lot that like nobody could tell the difference between France and Germany right um I mean and I don't think you know it's well, I I don't would not want to like say that I have a like a sort of reading of how the you know the film is thinking about like borders or nation in that way but like you know um the that, I mean, that's just, you know, there's something that's like kind of remarkable about that, you know, like um, that you all you need to do is change the signs and you can be anywhere. I mean, and that, you know, obviously, like, uh, that's partly because like that, you know, the stuff that's called France and the stuff that's called Germany has, you know, consistently not, you know, had its, you know, changed over like history or whatever. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, there's like no attachment. I mean, it's it is interesting, like because of you know because of like how intensely it's focused on the railroad. I mean, we have a couple of scenes that are like um, away from the tracks when they're hiding in that like kind of derelict farmhouse when he's rolling down the hill, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, but most, but mostly like it's it's in this like you know um, intermediate space this like infrastructural space i think that the like um i mean yeah i i think that the kind of uh i think it is more obvious like what nature is doing in um sorcerer although it does not quite it gets like perilously close to the suggestion that one might you know like encounter oneself in the heart of darkness but it doesn't really it doesn't actually really go there. And I think that, you know, uh, I think you can extract some things that are like kind of interesting in the encounters with, um, with the indigenous people, even though also I think that, you know, that basically just like a sort of exoticizing, um, racism is, is what's in play there. But, but, you know, there, there is some sense of like, just, uh, I mean, like, I guess maybe the moment I would think about is, like, when they get to that point in the jungle where, like, there's the fork and this, the kind of fork. And the Frenchman is like, don't you know how to read a map? And Roy Scheider is like, we're not going that way because that'll be in the swamp. And, like, it's pretty obvious that, you know, they're going to be in the swamp no matter what. But this kind of, like, this weird, you know, like, um, this is just like a land... This is like a landscape that it's uninter- it's uninterpretable to them, you know, like, um, but it could be interpretable as someone else like it seems like the man who sort of refuses to give them directions is actively refusing to give them directions, or at least it would be better to read him as actively refusing and refusing to give directions and. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I don't know, like, how, you know, how is it that you turn, like, a living world into just, like, you know, um, resources and then, like, this, like, pillar of, pillar of fire, like. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah I mean, on the, on the point of nobody can tell the difference between France and Germany and the, I love that, like, if you just change the signs, you they can be anywhere. Um you know, I get, yeah, that's part of the irony of the, of the movie and like the kind of moment of the sixties, maybe, maybe this would be, cause I think 64 is a little early for Vietnam allegories. I mean, it'd be on the cutting edge and Frankenheimer was in very, very astute and engaged, um, filmmaker. And I think that this is on balance, a left-wing film where it tries to be, at least in the American context. Um, so if, if there is a kind of, it's more of a generalized anti-war allegory because yeah, if you can't tell the difference between France and Germany, what the fuck are you doing? Um, And, but then, yeah, at the same time, what are you, what are you fighting for? Are you fighting for? And what is the status of the nation state? So like, that's the kind of like emptiness that we find, you know, uh, or, or kind of um, yeah, that we find at the end of the film, whereas like um, just a profound questioning of the nation state as a form um as something to fight for and and what what it actually what actually constitutes the nation state whether it's the people or its culture or whatever um yeah and as far as like nature and and on on that same note you know you know what fucking country are we in 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 sorcerer and the the biggest thing that we see i mean you know there are two institutions that we see in uh at play in uh uh in sorcerer in the jungle which is primarily the oil company, but then secondarily the state. And we see the state in the form of uh, election posters uh, for four military- years. Four, four, years. Four, four more years. more um, years, united together or something like that, united as one something, unidos something something. And they're all the images of this like military, clearly like military dictator. And so like the kind of the farce of democracy is on full display there. Um, we don't, you know, there's no government in America or, um, or France really. I mean, I get there, you know, there's a police force in America and there's the, the mafia in America and in France, you know, there's the family and the corporation and like the bank officials. Uh, and in Jerusalem, there is, you know, the, the Israeli, uh, military, the IDF or something, whoever is coming down on the, on the Palestinian saboteurs, um but uh but yeah, the place of the state is very uh tenuous in both of these of these films. Yeah. sorry if that was off point. I wonder why... oh and the, but the other thing is let me just say this real quick before I forget, but it's it it, it goes off of that, which is Labiche, you know, the moment I think that turns for him in the kind of the third act, that where he decides to take out the train uh, and try to save the art or something, or at least to like get the Nazis, is that he is told, he crosses the line uh, because all his friends die. And at a certain point, it's like either he's doing it for revenge, but it it can't be the only reason. But he learns that the allies are going to enter Paris first as a demonstration rather than direct the troops to where they actually need to go to stop the Nazis from killing his friends. And that's what, Kind of, I think that's the point where he decides I got to kill these Nazis and protect, you know, these hostages that they've that they've taken. And so it's an outrage about the performativity of the nation state. You know, that's the other thing is Britain has decided that the artworks are to be spared. So you now have to paint the tops of the trains white and of course that leads to the death of at least one if not two of his friends and this is like you know completely outrageous because also it's a fucking stupid plan like the plant the paint is going everywhere the nazis see it right away and then of course it gives the the colonel like a a direct ticket to berlin because he knows they're not going to bomb the train so um so 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 yeah it's a kind of uh there there is this is why i would say that the movie on balance is definitely a left-wing movie about workers, because it's the workers who have to band together to save themselves. You cannot find salvation in the nation state, even the good guys, right?
1: I wanted to ask, uh, like, two questions, Um, because I'm thinking about the nation state forum after this conversation that we've had. And... There's also a poster in the train that's like that's in French that says I saw like, that poster. Yeah, I I wanted that poster. It looks so cool. I did too. But it 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 says something like, you know, attention, railroad workers, beware of sabotage or something like that. But sabotage seems like such a such an archaic word that the state would use nowadays like nowadays like the word is terrorist right and I was also thinking about that in the context of the Palestinian character in Sorcerer right um so what's the difference between a terrorist and a saboteur uh that's one question and then also I was just like I had this like half-baked like weirdo thought that the painting of the train white in uh the train was like a brilliant. I I loved that scene. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Like the way that they're like, whatever, like dousing the plane or dousing the train and like spreading the paint around with their hands. It like it really captures this like really kinetic, like exciting element. Like I thought it was brilliant. Um, yeah. but then I was thinking about like, you know, the sixties countercultural phrase, right? Paint it black. You know, popularized by. um, uh, the Rolling Stones, like famous song or whatever, which is like 1966. So like, obviously way after, uh, you know, this film was, was shot, but I, I, I'm now kind of like interested in like, yeah, what is like the, the etymology of like the countercultural phrase, like to paint it black as like an act of like resistance of, you know, you know, against whatever kind of like, you know, fifties American, you know, middle class, you know, hegemony or whatever. Um. And today, then we like,
3: today we don't paint things black. We take the black pill. Oh. Uh, we get black. Matt,
1: pill. you're blowing my mind. Wow, look at that. That's folks, that's called scholarship right there. That's oh called my god, podcasting. <laughs> that's <laughs> wow. The black pill versus painting it. Black. Oh my god. This is oh. the backdoor
0: pilot for unobstructed for obstructed listening. Our rock and roll <laughs> podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Josh, I cut I cut you off, Josh. Go ahead.
1: No, 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 no. That's that's it. That's the that's the end of my that's the end of my 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 rant. But I I I don't know. Is there is there is there something there? Maybe not. Maybe well, I'm just throwing it. I
3: think the point about terrorism versus sabotage is really important, right? Because and, and you're you you're exactly correct that we don't have saboteurs anymore, we have terrorists. And exactly because saboteurs have a reason for what they do and terrorists don't. Terrorists are crazy. Um, terrorists are like, there is no, nothing worse than a terrorist except for a pedophile. And probably most terrorists are pedophiles, but saboteurs have like a political reason. They have, uh, they have a legitimate grievance against either the government or the company, probably both. Um, and, uh, if you're a saboteur, you, you, you have a cause that could be, um, picked up by other people. If you're a terrorist, you are, you know, you are meant to be hunted to the ends of the earth. So that's. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's the big difference. And that's a major terminological shift um that has been um accomplished in the last, you know, 25 years or so, maybe maybe 40, but yeah. yeah I mean, for, for sabotage, those. you have to for sabotage you have to have an organized labor movement. I mean, as well. So it's like with, there is no with sabotage technic-
1: with technical know-how. And the yeah. terrorist doesn't know anything. The terrorist only knows like fear and, yeah. and spreading terror, you know. Right, right, right.
2: But I mean, I do think, uh, you know, I think that in the sort of like, um, I, I mean, I think I think sabotage gets used. I mean, so I think when people get, um, uh, you know, jailed for acts of sabotage, they are referred to as terrorists. But I do think that there's still um there is still some kind of like public you know like security discourse around sabotage particularly in relation to um uh to like ecological liberation actions you know and i definitely i think in the kind of like um in the 80s and 90s like uh the you know tree spiking or other other like um uh, other ways of stopping, other forms of forest defense, you know, were pretty routinely described as sabotage. And which is, I mean, and that's kind of an interesting, I mean, that's probably what I was thinking about, like, what's interesting about the, like, um, the scene in Sorcerer, where the Palestinian guy is like, I'll get that tree out of, I'll get that tree out of the way. Because, like, he's basically, he's he seems to be producing, like, what he's doing is making the kind of, like, a, um. You know a trap or a snare of some of some kind that would presumably be you know like a, a thing that you would make so that like a, you would trigger it to like you know when you're like hunting or whatever whatever something like that but there's this interesting it's a place where we see like rather than using he rather than using things made out of like um metal and like doing something with like machine parts he's becomes fully except for the except for the tnt it becomes fully improvisatory or whatever um you know like and they and i love that the scene of them like they're like whittling away to get like the branches right and imagining that i feel like this speaks to your point about like there's no talking because like Uh, How does he communicate to them? I know I need you to make, I need you to make a better notch in that thing or whatever it is. But then when he like takes the guy's pocket, he takes the guy's pocket out and fills it with sand. I mean, it's just like, it's incredibly cool. The whole, I mean, the whole thing is like completely, completely insane, incredibly cool. But it's interesting because it's like, so this guy is the, of, of these guys He's the only bomb builder. I mean, presumably he actually. I mean, because you know, or maybe he didn't build the bomb from from the Jerusalem scene, but like he was part. He was clearly like part of that. Um, uh, but here he is like using like a really different set of tools that intersect more clearly, like with sort of like survival, um, outside of like outside of an urban setting, outside of like you know and you know built uh you know a built environment right um and then like you know there's this like huge fucking explosion it's so it's so crazy and then the shot where you see the tree it kind of looks like oh wait did it actually all blow up or (laughs) Uh, anyway but i i think that that's like it just to me that was like a very interesting kind of like central scene and his character because like he says very i mean none of them say very much you know but like we learn very very little about him and he's like very you know he's like a very expressive um but also um you know uh yeah you know like our sense of his backstory is probably less than our sense of like the roy scheider backstory or the um the banker's backstory um yeah, I don't know that Im- that sort of improvisatory scene, like in the middle, like in relation to like using the jungle itself. After Roy Scheider like loses his shit and is like, "I'm just, I'm just gonna destroy, destroy all of this. If I can knock down eight trees, he has an incredibly American reaction. Yeah. If I cut down eight trees, that will be enough that we can just like drive over this."
0: Thing. <laughs> I I love that scene also because the only I think the only dialogue in that scene is when. Kasim says to Nilo, turn out your pockets. And he does. And not only does that moment make clear, like we don't have shit to work with here. The shit we do have to work with is like the pocket. Like the, <laughs> we work with the nothing that we have. We work with your empty pocket. We work
1: with the jungle. Fantastic scene.
2: Yeah, great scene.
1: I, I also would just want to say, I think like improvisational know-how is a really cool like phrase or or term or or category or something like that. Uh, Hillary, that you've that you've that you've coined I'm also thinking about like that famous Jasper Burns uh essay about logistics remember that one in Endnotes yeah where part of um part of that essay right is about like the decline of like working class or proletarian know-how due to a kind of like uh mechanization like that plays a huge part I think in that in that essay where it's like you know, at least like at some point, you know, maybe, you know, during, during like, you know, for what we would approximately call Fordism or something like that, um, there was a kind of intimacy with, with knowledge and that sort of produced a, a kind of sense of how a machine worked, even if like capitalist division of labor, you know, always, you know, prevents you from seeing the the totality of, of the machine or whatever. Um, but I just can't, I, I keep thinking too, like in this context, right? Like you know 60s and then eventually like you know 1977 or whatever there is like this eventual like de-skilling this progressive de-skilling of uh like the working class in america and i can't i can't help but think that part of these films are trying to speak to like a fantasy of reclaiming that know-how some in some way that like um you know yeah these these characters have like have learned something from their really shitty jobs that can apply to uh, a realm called nature or something like that like um you know and 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 it can apply like outside of the factory in some way and that you know there's something like deeply pleasurable about that there's some kind of fantasy that's activated um that yeah that that work isn't actually so isn't going in such a nihilistic direction maybe um I don't know.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, that that takes us back to, I, I need to go in just like two or three minutes, but that I think that really nicely takes us back to the sort of the stuff about cooperation that we were saying at the beginning, which seems like very much part of that idea about like, I mean, that is part of the pleasure of the train is just the idea of like having, co- having co- coordinated at this level and like everybody sort of like being in it together and figuring out how to do it against all you know like those those pieces um i think yeah uh anyway those things seem to me to fit fit together like some idea about like know-how and some idea about like working with others however ambivalent that ends up being in both you know, in both movies
0: well, thank you both for letting us launch Obstructed Viewing. Um, I assume you'll also, I mean, I assume this because we will do it. We'll also put this intro in our Obstructed Viewing feed. So uh, if you want to see future, hear future episodes, then uh, you can track that down wherever you currently buy your podcasts.
2: Uh, and uh, thank you guys for um, allowing us to uh ramble on in our usual inimitable style yeah don't try it to it was imitate a pleasure it. don't try to imitate don't it. try to imitate what we do it's no. uh uh
3: yeah, um, it, it's it's an honor to be your inaugural guests, and uh, we look forward to many hundreds of episodes and consistent content uh, weekly from here on out. Yes, just exactly. you
1: wait—you'll be up to your ears in in content. There are just so so many dishes that you'll have to do that will require all of our. Uh... All, all of our content Can't we wait. will and maroon
0: listeners we promise this will not be the last time that we that matt and hillary join us for more movie discussion they'll be back yeah. for more obstructive you should humor. have
3: more other people besides us as guests though i think for i, I don't know we,
1: we got to meet some other people first but that's a great idea Matt. yeah 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 we'll, we'll work on that yeah go um, write that down meet other people and, I did. yeah okay.
2: uh and also um, marooned listeners Matt and i will record an episode soon you know and say hi i, I mean people have been very sweet about like sending us emails and yeah. saying they uh miss have- us
3: and we miss you too we have a running list of things to complain about and yeah. uh talk about so um we'll 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 grind out an episode about about that and then figure out what other science fictional universes we want to delve into
2: we'll gr- we'll grind out an episode with joy a joyful yeah. grinding <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Man, introduce us to the to joyful stump grinding at the beginning of the episode joyful podcast grinding yeah. seems like a translatable skill
2: yeah yeah uh, you guys, thank Everybody. you. This is this is awesome, and also I I feel like I'm happy to recommend both of these both of these movies, but definitely oh, yeah. Sorcerer. Sorcerer is
1: yeah, the
0: awesome. treasure. It's
3: awesome. so yeah. it's it's a real bummer that it, to learn that it was a box office flop because and you could sort of see why because of how sparse it is with dialogue, but just to witness the I mean I was thinking about it. I mean after talking about it, uh, of course I know this is wrong, but it's almost a movie with no subtext. I mean you yeah, can yeah. enjoy it completely <laughs> free of subtext. Fan- if there's any subtext at all, if there's any subtext at all, you don't need it need you know just open your eyes and watch what the yeah. fuck yeah. these crazy people <laughs> are doing <laughs> in the jungle. Wild. It's and riveting.
1: It's
2: riveting. I I li- I there were two scenes where I literally bit my knuckle. You know, no, and yeah. I'm like, wow.
0: oh, I got I'd seen it before and still bit my knuckle. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and the okay. train is awesome too, and John Frankenheimer is awesome. Okay, thank you yep. for listening. Hillary has to go. Bill, Josh, thank you. Bye. Thank you. We'll Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye,
2: everybody. Bye.